Tonight we are in Philippians chapter 4. And this is the last chapter of the book, which means that next Sunday we're going to be finishing up our series in the book of Philippians. And my hope is that as we've gone through this book, that it has marked you and that it's marked us as a church. I hope you've learned. I hope that you know the book of Philippians and its message and its teachings, that you've memorized some of the verses, that God has spoken to you and that you have grown and that we have grown and matured together as a church in following Jesus. Now, as we come to Philippians 4 verse 1 to 9, our passage for tonight, there are two ways that I think we can look at this. And the first is that with everything going on in this passage, that going through this message tonight is going to be like drinking from a fire hose. And the reason I say that is tonight we're just looking at nine verses, but they are action-packed and dense. This is rapid fire, lots of truth. A lot of these passages have been one big idea, but this passage here is a lot of little big ideas with lots of application and lots of different nuance and things going on. In fact, I think verse 2 to 8 is really interesting because each one of the verses feels like a different proverb. They're these pithy, punchy, short, forceful, meaningful verses. And it's kind of like in boxing, you know, in boxing you can have little jabs, but then you can have big solid punches. And what's happening here in chapter four is each verse is a solid punch again and again, you know, just these truth bombs that Paul is going through. Each verse, a new truth, each verse, a solid punch uh, that could be a sermon on its own. It's almost like as Paul is finishing up his letter and he knows he's running out of time and space, he's trying to pack in as much content and truth as he can. But I think the second way that we can look at tonight's passage and the way I'd like you to look at it as we go through it is that this passage is like Paul making a truth hamburger, like a culinary genius. He is carefully placing ingredient upon ingredient, layer upon layer to make the perfect burger for the Philippians and for us to eat and to learn from. Now, um, I don't know what you did during hard lockdown to pass the time, but for Shell and I, Saturday night became burger night. And I think I got pretty good at making burgers for our family as a bit of a fun weekend treat. So I'd kind of go in and listen to an audiobook or listen to some music or something in the kitchen. And I would start with the homemade patties and I'd get out the mince, I'd get out the breadcrumbs and the egg and the mustard and the salt and pepper and the other seasoning I wanted to go in there, a little, little bit of finely chopped onion. And I would put these patties together and, you know, uh, put them all together, put them in the fridge just to cool a little bit. And then I would get all of the sides, so all of the things that were going to make up the layers of the burgers ready. So I'd get the rolls and I'd cut them. I would get uh, the tomato and I'd slice that up nice and thin. I'd clean and I'd prepare the lettuce. I'd fry up some onion. I would make this burger sauce that we were enjoying, a little bit of tomato sauce, a bit of mayo, a bit of sriracha just for some spice there. And then I would toast the bun. But I think my favorite part of the burgers I was making is when I fried those patties, after I flipped them over, I would put on a slice of cheese and that cheese would just melt nicely on the hot patty and be ready to go into the burger when I served them. For me, making those burgers, it required some thought, some preparation, some strategy, the right order to get all of those flavor profiles right together. And it's kind of like that as Paul writes Philippians 4 verse 1 to 9. There's a lot of ingredients involved. There's a lot of truth being poured into these verses. There's a lot of layering going on. But Paul has perfectly assembled all of this for a delicious truth burger to help us to follow Jesus and to grow as disciples. So let's read it together. Let's tuck in and see what God has to say to us through his word today. Philippians 4 verse 1. 
So then my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guide your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So let's look at each one of these ingredients going into the burger, and let's start with a bun in verse one. In verse one, Paul just calls us to one thing. He says, stand firm in the Lord. And last week I highlighted that idea of standing firm, uh, you know, staying true to God. Tonight I wanna emphasize the in the Lord part. And really the question for all of us at the moment is, how do we follow Jesus? How do we love our enemies and live out the ways of the kingdom of God? How do we navigate a global pandemic and its effects on our lives and businesses and economy and mental health? How do we live as a single or married person, as a parent? How do we work to the glory of God and raise kids and share the gospel and be kind and generous and do everything that it looks like to obey Jesus's teachings and stay true to God or to stand firm? And Paul's answer here is that our power comes from him. Our power is in the Lord. The only way we can do this is in the Lord. And if you scan down verses 1 to 9 and see some of the phrases that pop out to you there, you'll notice that Paul says three times in verse 2, agree in the Lord. In verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. And in verse 7, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This idea of being in Christ in Durban or in Christ in Philippi is something that flows through this whole letter. So theologically, if you are a Christian watching this today, you are in Christ. And practically, what Paul is teaching us to do is to learn to live out our faith, to to live as someone who is in Christ, to abide in him, to trust in him daily, to draw on his power, to submit to him in everything, and to be led by his spirit. Harbour City, we are in Christ in Durban. So let's live from our position in Him. And really this whole passage tonight is teaching us what it looks like to be in Him or to live out the faith we have that is in Him. This is not just a random selection of punchy proverbs that Paul throws together. He's showing us what it looks like to live the Jesus way. This is a Jesus truth burger that Paul is serving up tonight to help us to live this all out. So let's carry on in verse 2. This this could be the lettuce on the bun. Verse 2, it says, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. It's quite a thing to be publicly called out for your sin. 
And I mean, that's what's happening here. Imagine if I did this right now, you know, where we're gathering at Glenridge Church on Sunday evening. Imagine if I just called out two people and said, hey, you, you, you guys, you're sinning. You're not repenting of your sin. You're carrying on in your sin. You need to repent right now. Stop doing what you're doing. And really, that is what Paul is doing. It's so awkward. It's so uncomfortable as this letter is read to the church in Philippi and good old Euodia and Syntyche hear this and they're, they're publicly shamed for what they've been doing. But Paul obviously feels that he needs to address this problem. So he speaks to both parties that are involved in this. And he also speaks to the whole church community about how they are, how we are to deal with a situation like this. Now, we don't have any of the background. We don't know anything else about Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know why they're beefing. We don't know what their problem is. But we do know that they're Christians. Paul tells us their names are written in the book of life. They've also worked shoulder to shoulder with Paul in advancing God's kingdom. He calls them his co-workers. And they seem to be leaders in the church. They seem to be people who have influence in this church and have been leading and discipling and affecting others. And they seem to be having a significant disagreement here. Now listen, Matthew 18 is the go-to passage on how to deal with conflict. It's Jesus, the master, the savior, God himself, teaching us how we should deal with sin and problems between people. And he starts very simply saying, if someone sins against you, if someone hurts you, what you do is you go straight to them, tell them how they've sinned and try and reconcile. Basically, what Jesus is saying is when someone hurts you, don't go to everyone else and complain about them and moan about them and slander them and ask for advice really in the name of tearing them to shreds and then go and sort it out where you feel justified and they feel torn down. No. Try and keep this person and their sin covered and just go to them and reconcile it between the two of you. Don't make the circle bigger. Give them an opportunity to repent. Give them an opportunity to reconcile with you. And if not, then include some others. Make the circle bigger. So if that doesn't work, what you do is you bring someone else in to help you out. Ask a friend, ask a leader, ask someone who's wise to be a bit of a mediator for you in this situation. To come and talk to this other person to help them to see their sin and they need to repent and to reconcile. And if even then this person won't deal with their sin, if they won't own it, if they won't repent, if they won't change, if they won't stop what they're doing, then bring it to the leaders of the church, the elders, and they will deal with that with you. Now, this, at this stage, when you have to bring it to the leaders of the church, this is obviously escalated. You know, this is a point where it's not just two people involved. There's probably a number of people involved, a number of people who know what is going on. And this is starting to affect more than just the two. This is affecting others. It can be causing rifts and division and fights in a church community. And this seems to be what's happening here in verse 2 and 3. This isn't a little secret squabble that is going on between these two ladies that Paul jumps in on. Somehow, Paul has heard about their conflict all the way in Rome in the prison cell that he's in. This is a situation that's going on between two leaders in the church that hasn't been easily resolved and that is starting to cause division and fracture in this church community. The unity that they have, the the culture they have, the witness they've got to the world around them is being affected and being hampered by the conflict between these women. So Paul urges Euodia and Syntyche to reconcile. And he appeals to the whole church to get involved, help to facilitate this reconciliation. This is really, really key. 
And we don't know what Paul had in mind for the whole church, if that meant praying for them, if that meant urging them also, just saying, please, would you sort this out? If that meant preserving unity, um, getting involved, facilitating mediation. But Paul is saying, everyone, this is key. Let's get involved. But why is this so important that Paul spends two verses dealing with this? Well, the message of Jesus is a message of reconciliation. You know, Jesus died on the cross to reconcile man to God. He died that our sins could be forgiven and that actually the the separation that existed between us and God because of our sin could be taken away, that we could be reconciled to God. See, Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved to die. He took our sin on himself and gave us his righteousness so that we could be reconciled to God. Even though we were the guilty party, we were the ones that sinned against him. So this is a gospel issue. These two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, they're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. See, our lives must live in light of the message of Jesus. And here we see that the fighting between these ladies is affecting the gospel culture and the relationships of the whole church in Philippi. These leaders, these two women who have led and influenced others in the church are now not practicing what they have preached and are living out of sync with the way of Jesus. And it's confusing people. People that they've mentored and discipled and led and taught before now are saying, but we don't understand the gospel because of how Euodia is acting. You know, Syntyche used to say this, but now she's acting this way. It doesn't make sense. And it's changing how they think and how they act and how they speak and how they treat one another. And it's eroding the way of Jesus that has been taught and invested and prayed and shaped into this community of people. What is going on here is serious. You see, we cannot proclaim that we follow Jesus, that we cannot proclaim that God has forgiven us of our sin, that we've been reconciled to him freely by grace through Jesus and then refuse to forgive someone else who has sinned against us. Now, what we are called to do is to show others the grace of God that we have received. Just as God has treated us in Christ, so we should treat one another. It's the vertical and horizontal sides of the gospel. And that's what it looks like to live as Christians. That's kind of a cheat for how we live out this faith in every area, in every situation. Now listen, the truth is, as much as I am an idealist, we cannot control someone else's behavior. And in some situations, we might reach out to someone else and they won't forgive us. They won't meet with us. They won't hear us out. They don't want to reconcile. Our role in that, you know, we cannot force someone to do something. But we should seek to be at peace with everyone as much as that is in our power. And we're possible to reconcile those relationships. And as much as this might sound like a serious thing, this is something that happens in families all the time. You know, you have conflict, you have a fight, and then you have a conversation. And there's repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation between brother and sister or mother and father or whoever it is. You know, this might not be the language that we, li- that we use to describe these things, but this happens in families all the time. So, of course, this is going to happen in the family of God. And when it does happen, our response needs to be a grace-filled humility in trying to work this through with the other people involved. So let me ask you a few questions for where you're at right now. Do you have any broken relationships that need reconciling? Do you have any unforgiveness in your heart or life? That you need to deal with? Are you living in light of the gospel and treating others the way God in Christ has treated you? And are you creating unity or disunity in this community through what you do and say? The next layer of this burger 
I guess we could call this the source. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this tonight because we've talked about rejoicing and joy a number of times in the series. And we're going to actually end talking about joy and contentment next week a bit more. But what Paul is saying here is not rejoice when your circumstances are going well. He says rejoice in the Lord always when things are good and when things are bad. The joy he writes about here comes from our relationship with Jesus. It doesn't come from our circumstances, which means that this joy can be our can be ours always, no matter what we are facing and what we're going through. And what he's calling us to here, what he's teaching us, is that we need to learn to lead ourselves and learn to live a life of rejoicing. This doesn't come naturally to us. That's why he needs to tell us to do it. But this is a habit that we can learn by the power of the Spirit and develop in our lives. Now, George Mueller, a famous Christian from Britain, he famously said, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Do you do that? When you wake up in the morning, is the first thing that you do. You you wipe the sleep out of your eyes and then you make your soul happy in the Lord. You, you, You rejoice in the Lord. You fill yourself with joy in Jesus. Is that how you start your day? Mueller had learned to do this. Because he didn't just naturally wake up rejoicing and ready to rejoice every single day. But in Christ, despite our circumstances, and and I just want to say here, not ignoring our circumstances, but despite them, we always have a reason to rejoice. This for us is a spiritual discipline. It's a, a habit. It's a Christian practice. This is a command here. Rejoicing in the midst of pain, disappointment, confusion, fear, grief. Uh, whatever it is that you might be facing, this is shaping us to become a new kind of person by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this new kind of person we're becoming looks more and more like Jesus. On to the next layer. Now Paul's putting in the tomato. Philippians 4 verse 5. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. What do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known as successful? Sporty, beautiful, cool, smart, intelligent, kind. What Paul says to us here is that we should have a reputation of being gracious in our dealings with the people around us. You know, those inside and outside of the church. And I looked it up, that word you're there, as in let your graciousness be known to everyone, is not singular. Of course, this means us individually because the church is made up of lots of individuals. But that word your is a plural word. Paul is speaking to the whole church there. So what he's saying is that our graciousness as a church should be known to everyone. That the grace of God should be on display to the whole of Durban through the people of Harbour City. That's what's going on. Paul is speaking about a culture of grace which can exist amongst us. Which is not just something that we speak about, but it's something that we live. It's something that is alive amongst us. It's something that exists in what we do and say and how we make decisions and treat one another. It's, it's in our actions and words and deeds and feelings. It, it's a culture. It's a whole way of life. So what is that culture of grace? Well, I joked with someone this week while we were talking about August that she's still not crawling yet. And even some of the kids who are younger than her are crawling and she's still not there. She's still got her one knee in place as a bit of a little break. 
So I said, we're going to start to guilt her into crawling, saying things like, don't you know that your friend Maka, who is two months younger than you, don't you know that she's crawling already? What's going on, August? All your friends are crawling. What's wrong with you? Now, listen, if you don't know me and you don't know my sense of humor, of course, we're not going to do that. You know, that is guilt-based parenting. And I think, sadly, some of us have experienced that, and that's why it might not seem too far-fetched. But also some of us use guilt and we use shame and we use passive aggression in our relationships to get our way. And some of us grew up in families or churches that used guilt in that way to control us or get us to do what they wanted us to do. But grace-based parenting, a culture of grace, looks completely different. It's got a completely different engine. And the culture of grace in the church looks so different from that. It's free from guilt and shame from self-righteousness and judgment and harshness and manipulation. It's free from needing to earn approval or love. It's free from trying to prove yourself or be good enough because we have freely received grace from heaven and forgiveness from heaven and salvation and love from God, even when we didn't deserve it, even when we were imperfect. So because of that, we shouldn't be making people jump through hoops and perform and do certain things when Jesus hasn't expected that of you and I. We should treat others the way God in Christ has treated us. On to the next layer. Maybe this one is the paddy. This is quite a meaty little passage. So let's call this the paddy. Verse 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice the words anything and everything there. This is pretty all-inclusive. You're not going to get around those two words. Paul is saying here, because of who Jesus is, that we should never worry and always pray. Who's got that down yet? Anyone here? Never worries? No, no anxiety? Always praying? I heard a pastor recently say, this is probably the most ignored and disobeyed command in the whole Bible. And I don't know what you think. I, I can believe that's true. To never worry and to never be anxious. And when something comes along which would cause worry and anxiety to arise in you, that your first response, your natural instinct is to turn to God in prayer. You know, to turn straight to God. That would be an amazing thing. That's a picture of maturity in Christ. What Paul's saying here is when things go well, what do we do? We turn to God in thanksgiving and prayer. And when things go badly, what do we do? We turn to God in thanksgiving and prayer. Notice here that even though we're called to pray in all circumstances, there is no promise that the situation will instantly change or that everything is going to be okay or that our prayer will be answered the way that we want it to be. Paul doesn't say that prayer will keep us from having problems or that we can keep all of our problems at bay. Instead, what he says is that as we bring these prayers to God, our, our burdens, our needs to Him, we can have peace from God, which guards our hearts and minds, even in the midst of the problem we find ourselves in. And this isn't a peace that we produce. You know, Paul isn't showing us a technique to put in place in our lives. This is the result of turning to God and rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice and praying always. Again, I'll say pray. Paul writes, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. So a number of famous quotes about prayer. I'll just share two with you. Martin Luther says, pray and let God worry. I really like that. 
DA Carson says, I have yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. And if what I'm saying seems crazy to you tonight, then I want to encourage you to do this. Why don't you practice this? Next time you're dealing with a struggle, next time you feel overwhelmed by what you are encountering, bring it to God in prayer. Pray about it. Ask God for peace. Ask others to pray for your peace. Pray for your heart to be at peace, your mind to be at peace. Pray that God would bring peace into your anxiety, your fear, your worry, your concern, your uncertainty. And remember this, Paul who is writing this letter and this command is sitting in prison. He's, he's someone who knows hardship and difficulty and challenges. He's someone who has had to practice this himself. And he is someone who has found God to be a good father, a faithful friend in his moments of need. So Paul's saying to us, God cares, so don't worry and pray always. On to the last layer of the burger. I don't know what we're up to. Maybe this is the final part of the role. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Paul's final statement to us is about a Christian's prayer life. And he words it slightly differently in the NLT. In verse 8 of Philippians 4 in the NLT, he says, Fix your thoughts. Fix, set your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and so on. So I want to ask you today, what are your thoughts fixed on, set on? And where does your thought life dwell? (coughs) This passage isn't saying to us that we should just memorize and meditate on the Bible all day. Although I think that would be a good thing for us to do more and more. But this passage has just been speaking about anxiety and worry and rejoicing and praying in the midst of those things. And it's been pointing us to Jesus. And what Paul is doing the whole way through this is he's calling us to new habits and new spiritual disciplines. He's calling us here to lead our minds and our thought life. And this lines up with the rest of Scripture. I mean, in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes to a different church that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. If you want to have a different kind of life, then you need to change what your mind thinks about, change what your mind is set on. We need to take our thought life off certain things and put it onto others. We've got to stop our mind from dwelling on negative, unhelpful, unhealthy, even sinful things. And then it will change the kind of person we are. It will shape us in a whole new way. Proverbs 23 verse 7, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So what we fix our minds on, what what our thoughts are set on, what what we dwell on, that will shape the kind of person you and I become. So we need to protect our minds. We need to be careful about the kind of thoughts that we let run through our our thoughts. And we need to fight what happens in the battlefields of our minds and our hearts, our, our inner world. And if we do this, we will become more like Jesus. Maybe just to end. In Acts 22, Paul tells us a little bit about when he first encountered Jesus. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like to see Jesus in the flesh like Paul did. But it was an incredible life-changing moment. And Paul tells us the two questions that he asked Jesus when he met him. And I think these are so key for us in terms of uh, starting out in the faith and living out our faith. Paul says in Acts 22 verse 8, Who are you? And then in Acts 22 verse 10, What should I do? Who are you, Jesus? What should I do, Jesus? And that's what's going on in Philippians 4. And this is what so much of the Christian life is about. If you have truly encountered Jesus, if you've seen him and who he really is, not just heard about him, but but encountered him, 
then your life will be changed forever. And now we need to, in response to our encounter with him, learn to live out his ways, to, to live the way of Jesus. And that is what Paul is showing us here, what we should do. How to live a life that lines up with the gospel and, and what it looks like to live as a disciple of Jesus in all of life. And Jesus is our model for that. That's why we need to know, who are you, Lord? And if you don't know Jesus tonight, can I just say, before you start to put all this stuff in place in your life and, and try and live this way, I want to encourage you, get to know Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Read the Bible to get to know Jesus. Ask friends to share about Jesus with you. Get people to tell you their testimony of how Jesus has changed their life. But once you know him, begin to follow him and live out these ways because our new life flows from our new relationship with him. But once we know Jesus, we'll begin to follow him. We'll begin to become like him and to do what he did. And this really is the motivation behind everything Paul is speaking about in Philippians 4. And really this is it. This hamburger of truth, this Jesus burger that Paul is giving us, flows from knowing Jesus into how we live our lives. So for instance, firstly, when he talks to Euodia and Syntyche, he says, because Jesus has reconciled us and forgiven us, now we must forgive others. We can't stay mad at those who've sinned against us and failed us. We need to strive for reconciliation where possible and forgive those who've sinned against us because God in Christ has forgiven us. Or secondly, when it comes to rejoicing in the Lord, always, you know, because Jesus is the treasure of the universe, we've got a reason to be content in every and all circumstances. We can rejoice in anything because of our relationship with Jesus. And even when things in this world are hard, even when we're facing huge challenges and pain, and I know many of you are at the moment, we have eternal realities that we can trust in. You know, We are in Christ. We are God's children. We are right with God. Our sins are forgiven. Eternity with God is ours. We have a prize at the end of this race. So we can rejoice in the Lord always. Thirdly, as we talk about the culture of grace, the reality is we've been shown grace by God so that we can show grace to others. Even when we deserve judgment and condemnation and punishment from God because of our sin, Jesus did not rain that down on us. In fact, he made a way for us to know and experience grace. He freely showed us grace so that we would show grace to others. Even when they've hurt us, even when they failed us, even when they've let us down, Jesus showed us grace when we were in that place so that we would show grace to others too. Fourthly, when he talks about peace. You know, we don't have to live lives of anxiety and fear and worry because we know God is both our Father and He's the King of Kings who rules and reigns over everything. So we can live at peace in this world despite the challenges we face and the curveballs that come our way because God is the King of Kings who rules over everything. And lastly, God is holy. He's righteous. He's pure. He's perfect in every way. He is just our example. He's our role model. So we too should be holy and pure and righteous and to think on those things. Obviously, all of this is really answering the question, how do we stand firm? Well, it's, it's in the Lord, you know. We, we stand firm in this world because of what Jesus has done and how he has treated us. He is our model. So we want to know him and then we will know what to do. Let me pray for you this morning. Jesus, I just ask for each person watching this for a greater revelation of you and in light of who you are and what you've done, that we would know what it is that you want us to do. Even now, Holy Spirit, I ask you to highlight things in our lives 
you want to change or areas where you want to work. And I ask you to come and empower us to put those things into practice, to live them out, to do them, and to become more like you. Help us as Harbour City to live in Christ and to stand firm in the Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.